1: And enjoy the show. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. (laughs)
2: Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's program, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations, with audio adaptations of three rounds of frightening fiction about fearful futures, ghastly apparitions, and the looking glass that looks back. I'm Jason Hill, host of the Horror Hill Podcast, now in its second season, available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever podcasts can be found. Tonight, I'll be filling in for Steve Taylor, and I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring the frightening fiction of Ashley Rose Wellman, Emily 33, and Christopher Howard Wolfe to life, are voice talents Luis Bermudez and Justine Anastasia, as well as yours truly. Jason Hill Now get your ticket ready take your seat in our theater of the minds embrace yourself it's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark <laughs> <laughs> our first tale tonight was written by Ashley Rose Wellman and is voiced by our 2019 Evil Idol voice acting competition champion, Luis Bermudez. In it, what was intended to be a fun stop at a fortune teller's place of business turned sinister when the recipient of the shopkeeper's services is given some very bad news. Without further ado, I present to you... The Thing That Will Kill You.
3: I grew up in a tiny town in Vermont. Tiny in terms of population, not size. There were huge, sprawling farms and wooded areas, but almost no people. More cows than people, which is standard for a lot of small towns in Vermont. So, clearly not the most fun in the world for a kid who was sick of freezing winters and awful balmy summers surrounded by boring Vermonters that didn't have many kids my age. My only close friend was Tina, who was a year older than me. We spent almost all our time with each other, constantly dreaming about life outside of Vermont. The people in our town were strange folk. Different. Different than in other places. One thing I didn't realize about small towns until I moved to the city is how incredibly superstitious people in towns like mine could be. They believed in the strange. The paranormal. They believed in Luvia. Luvia was an older French-Canadian woman who had moved to Vermont when she met her husband, and everyone in town thought she was a clairvoyant. Psychic. Even my own parents did. One day, my mother lost her wedding ring. She had looked around everywhere for it. They called Luvia, and she immediately told them it was under old, rotting wood. They looked in the backyard, where my father had been tearing apart a decaying piano he'd found. My mother had helped him one day. The ring was there, under old, rotting wood. After hearing a lot about Luvia from older townsfolk who seemed to think she was 100% credible, Tina and I decided to go see her one evening to try to find out whatever she could tell us about the future. I was skeptical, but it seemed like a fun thing to do as a joke. So we dropped by her house in the early evening, and she opened the door as we walked up the pathway to her house before we even had a chance to knock. Tina elbowed me hard in the ribs and whispered that Luvia was clearly a psychic. She sensed us coming to the door. I whispered back that it probably had more to do with her house being full of windows and the fact that she probably saw us coming from a long way away. Either way, I started to feel strange the minute we got close to her. She was very, very old, very tiny and kind of Sunken. Sunken eye sockets and sharp cheekbones and a sort of concave chest cavity. It was more than a little unnerving, but she smiled and was sweet to us, and I started to warm up to her. Nothing about her or her house screamed creepy psychic to me, just a well-dressed older woman in a cabin-style house. It looked like you'd imagine any typical grandmother's home. doilies, knitting, family magazines, etc. We told her that we were interested in a clairvoyant reading, and handed her about twenty dollars that we had scrounged together between the two of us. She led us to her kitchen table and asked which of us wanted to go first. What can you tell me about my love life? Tina asked. Luvia had no crystal ball, tarot cards, or tea leaves. She just closed her eyes and sat silently for about two minutes. Then she took a deep breath and said, Michael Carton. Tina stared at her for a few seconds until Luvia repeated, Michael Carton. The man you're going to marry. Michael Carton. Tina thanked her and repeated the name to herself a few times. Michael Carton. Michael Carton. Michael Michael Carton. Luvia then turned to me. Whatever you can tell me, I'd like to hear, I said. It doesn't have to be about my love life or anything. Luvia closed her eyes for a few seconds, but information about me seemed to reach her much quicker than her visions of Tina's husband. She looked straight into my eyes, grabbed my hands, and said, The thing that will kill you is shedding its skin. The thing that will kill you is sharpening its teeth. The thing that will kill you is washing the blood off its cross. The thing that will kill you is gathering skins. The thing that will kill you... You won't see coming. The three of us sat there in silence for quite a while. I felt sick, shaken up. Luvia looked as if she wished she didn't have to tell me that. Is... is there anything I can do to stop it? I asked. Luvia slid our money back across the table to us. No charge for the reading. Tina and I slunk out of Luvia's house quietly. We didn't say a word on the way back to our houses. Tina just found out the name of the love of her life. I got to listen to a horrifying cryptic message about my death. I was twelve years old. I was fucking terrified. When Tina left me at my doorstep, she tried to make light of the readings. How does she know who I'm going to marry? She asked. And it's not like some monster is going to get you. Some skin-shedding, bloody, sharp... It's not like some monster's going to get you. It's not like... <sighs> some monster isn't going to get you. For years, I looked for it. The thing that will kill me. I could almost feel it sensed it just behind each car, swaying behind the trees at night. Underneath the fresh snow, waiting outside my window. With every step, I hesitated. Every time I tried to sleep, I could almost see it. What had she said about its teeth? I looked out for sloughed skin, for blood, for skins, for hides. But I never found it. When I was 18, I left for college in California to get far away from the snow and the cold and the thing that will kill me. I stopped sensing it everywhere. My heart stopped pounding whenever I walked alone at night. Maybe whatever it was, it stayed in Vermont. Maybe it wasn't a thing at all. People in California laughed when I told them the story, and it stopped seeming real. Just the ramblings of a tiny, ancient French-Canadian woman. It wasn't real. When I was 27... A wedding invitation came in the mail. Tina was getting married. This was the first I had heard of it. I was still in California and barely kept in contact with anyone from back east. It seemed like a past life. You are cordially invited to the wedding of Michael Carton and Tina... Wait. No. She had... Clearly she had the name in her mind. Michael Carton and she sought him out. It had nothing to do with Luvia. Her predictions weren't real. They couldn't be. Clairvoyants don't exist. It's ridiculous to think that kind of thing happens in the real world. I went to the wedding. Tina, Michael, and I laughed about the whole thing. The psychic knew she predicted it. Of course she didn't. Tina and Michael decided it was nothing more than a funny story to tell their future children. Just tell us if you run into some beast with razor-sharp teeth that's gathering skins, okay? Then we'll think it's more than just a funny coincidence. I left the wedding as sure as I ever was that the thing that will kill me wasn't real. Didn't exist. I looked behind the trees, behind the cars. Nothing was waiting for me. Nothing was ready to skin me. I didn't know why I had been scared so long. The best thing about Tina's wedding was that we got back in touch for the first time in a very long time. We were very different people than we had been as children, but we still shared more of a bond than we realized. She was happy, living in Vermont with Michael. She told me everything that was going on in our town. The population slowly increasing, the new schools they were building, the babies that were born. Luvia dying. As the years went on, her calls and emails got less and less frequent. She always seemed to be busy. Soon, they tapered off completely. I missed her, of course, but I had my own life, and I could check in on my childhood home whenever I wanted. One winter, I came into town to visit my parents for the holidays and decided I'd swing by Tina's house. I'd normally never just drop by, but she was pretty bad about answering her phone and I really wanted to see her. I pulled up to her and Michael's house. Two cars were in the driveway, so I figured they were both home. I walked up and rang the doorbell. Michael opened it, dressed in several layers and a large coat, as if he had just come in from the snow. He invited me inside. He looked very surprised to see me and asked if I had talked to Tina recently. I haven't actually not in several months. Sorry for the invasion. I I don't usually just drop by like this, but I was wondering if I could see her. I uh I figured you'd know that you'd have heard. <laughs> she left me a few months ago. Just up and left. Hasn't spoke to me since. Oh god. I said, "I'm so sorry, I had no idea. He took off his coat and hung it on a coat rack by the door. Can I take your coat? He asked. I told him it was alright, that I wouldn't be staying long. I was just so shocked she'd do something like that. He was a really good guy. I'm sorry, I was about to get ready for bed. I've got an early work day tomorrow. Do you mind? He kicked off his shoes, pulled his sweater off, and headed toward his bathroom. I settled in, looked around their home. ''Of course, I don't mind. Uh, Do you know where she went?'' ''I don't,'' he yelled from the bathroom, mouth full of toothpaste. ''She didn't call until after she was gone.'' ''That's awful. I'm sorry.'' He started flossing, and when he saw me looking toward him, closed the door for privacy. When I heard the shower water start running, I pulled out my phone, figured I'd take this time to look through Tina's last messages to me, to see if she gave any hint to where she went, any clue. My phone fell out of my hand as I grabbed it out of my bag and I saw it drop beneath the couch. As I felt around under the couch for my phone, my hand hit something else, a massive clump of long hair. I pulled it out from beneath the couch It seemed so strange, such a large mass of hair. Brown hair. Tina's shade. Hair with a piece of scalp still attached. The thing that will kill you is gathering skins. I turned toward the bathroom door. Michael was still showering. The thing that will kill you is washing the blood off its claws, flossing, brushing. The thing that will kill you is sharpening its teeth, sloughing off his outer clothes, his shoes. The thing that will kill you is shedding its skin. Oh God, the thing that will kill me. I heard the water in the shower stop, movements from inside the bathroom. I ran out the door, slammed the door, sprinted to my car, shaking. Watching the door, my hands fumbled with the keys, shaking. Shaking. The door to the house opened. My car started. I drove. I didn't look back. I drove all through the night, through most of the next day, only stopping when I absolutely had to. I had no idea if he was following me. I had no idea what I had just seen. My heart didn't start beating normally again until I was two states away. I went home. This was months ago. I called the police. They investigated nothing turned up they're sure she just left him moved away maybe she did maybe she's far away safe maybe nothing's coming for me maybe michael's just a poor guy whose wife left him maybe it's nothing behind the trees in the snowdrifts, underneath the cars outside my door at night and the windows maybe it's nothing Probably, it's nothing. Luvia's been wrong before, hasn't she? The thing that will kill you, you won't see coming.
4: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take.
2: I hope you enjoyed The Thing That Will Kill You, as written by Ashley Rose Wellman and performed by our 2019 Evil Idol champion, Luis Bermudez. If you enjoyed Luis's performance, check out more of his narrations via our Evil Idol 2019 playlist, available on our official YouTube channel. I'm certain you'll enjoy his performances from this past year's contest as much as you did this one. Two of them, or even written by the contestant himself. Up next, we've got a second sinister story for you, as written by author Emily 33 and performed by Justine Anastasia. In it, our protagonist sees someone in her mirror. There's just one problem. It's not her. And she's alone. Without further ado, I present to you... There's a dead girl in my mirror.
0: Saturday. This sounds absolutely idiotic. I know you've all heard this kind of thing before. Someone thinks her house is haunted, everyone else assures her that she's just paranoid, And all kinds of terror and gore follows. It's the stuff of every campy, B-list horror movie. But I swear on my life. I'm not crazy. No one believes me. But then I found this forum, and I think maybe someone can help me. Let me explain. I moved to Boston from Minneapolis about a month ago. To start work as a postdoctoral fellow in a research lab at Harvard Medical School. See? I'm a smart person. I'm not crazy. I ended up living with a friend of a friend in her tiny apartment that's definitely not designed for two people. It's not old and decrepit like you see in the movies. It was probably built in the 1970s, and there's nothing scary about the building itself besides lead paint on the walls. However, I became uneasy the very first time I looked in the bathroom mirror. I was brushing my teeth when I thought I saw a flicker of movement behind me. I turned around thinking it must be my new roommate. She hadn't been there the entire afternoon while I was moving my boxes in, so I hadn't met her yet. I poked my head out the door to look for her, but she was nowhere to be seen. I shrugged and continued brushing my teeth, not thinking much of the moment, but feeling slightly on edge. The next few days were crazy, so I wasn't exactly sitting around staring at the bathroom mirror all day. I was getting accustomed to my lab, filling out mountains of paperwork, losing my ID card, and getting locked out of the mouse facility. You know, normal work stuff. It wasn't until a week later, when I decided to do some deep cleaning of the apartment, that I took a good look at the mirror again. And the mirror took a good look back at me. There I was, perched halfway on the sink and scrubbing the mirror with glass cleaner, when I caught a flash of movement and saw a face in the glass like someone was standing right behind me. I inhaled sharply and fell off the counter, dropping the cleaning supplies with a huge clatter that sent my roommate running to see what happened. After explaining that I had just lost my balance and everything was fine, somehow I didn't think that babbling about mysterious phantoms in the mirrors was good roommate bonding material, I cautiously peered back into the mirror. There was nothing but my flushed and worried face. I mentally berated myself for being so stupid. I was a logical, smart scientist. Not someone who fell for scary stories and believed in ghosts. I was just freaking myself out. Stress from work or something. Maybe I was sick. I started to sound eerily similar to Scrooge denying the reality of the ghost of Jacob Marley. Fast forward to later that night, when I woke up desperately needing to use the bathroom. Of course, after carrying out that task, I needed to wash my hands, which was located... You see where this is going. I tried to focus on nothing but my hands, but I couldn't help taking a peek at the mirror. And then I screamed loud enough to wake up the whole building. In the dim light, I could see a girl's face, reflected in the same spot I had seen it before, near the upper right-hand corner. Her pale skin was dull and pasty, and her hair was stringy and unkempt. She looked to be in her late teens, maybe 16 or 17. Her face was utterly plain and unmemorable, besides her expression of abject terror. A hand touched my shoulder, and I swear my heart practically exploded in fear and shock. It turned out to be my roommate again, this time sleepier and more annoyed. I sank down to the floor and breathed heavily, trying to calm my heart rate. What the hell is going on? Cassie asked wearily. Fear outweighed pride, and I decided that enough was enough. I had to tell her, and she would be able to see it too. The face was right there in the mirror, plain as day. I, um, it's, well, it's that face in the mirror. The girl who looks at you, and my voice came out embarrassingly shaky and weak, and I trailed off, realizing how stupid I sounded. Cassie gaped at me. So you screamed and woke everyone within a mile radius because you saw a face in the mirror. Did you forget what mirrors are for? Let me explain for you. The mirror reflects your own face. No, no, it's not me, I protested squeakily. It's someone else. Look, look. I stood up and grabbed her shoulders, turning her to face the mirror. In the right-hand corner, see? See her face? Oh my god, her eyes are moving. She's watching us. Slowly, Cassie put her hand on mine, which was flailing around in a panic. Liz, she said carefully, go to sleep. You had a bad dream and you're freaking out. There's nothing there. I couldn't even form words to reply. I could see the girl in the mirror, plain as day, right next to my face. Her eyes were trained on me, but she blinked slowly, and her nostrils flared slightly as she breathed in and out. How could I be seeing things or making it up? I must have been losing my mind. I slunk back to bed and sobbed under my covers until I fell asleep. For three days, I brushed my teeth and washed my hands in the kitchen sink, and I closed my eyes every time I passed the mirror. I avoided all conversation with Cassie and went so far as to stay and work overnight at the lab one night. But my curiosity was running like crazy the entire time, and I finally broke down. Saturday afternoon, not the middle of the night, I had learned my lesson about that. I girded my loins and took a trip to the mirror. She was there again, waiting for me. Her bottomless black eyes bored into mine and I thought I could hear her humming right at the edge of audibility. Without realizing, I leaned closer and closer until my nose bumped into the glass and brought me back to my senses. I backed up rapidly, pressing myself against the wall behind me, but I couldn't break eye contact. Her desperate, pleading face drew me in like a magnet. And against my will, I found myself moving closer again until... The front door banged open and Cassie entered with her boyfriend. I started washing my hands, pretending I hadn't just been staring at a ghost. Was she a ghost? In the mirror. Cassie had been acting very cautiously around me as though I might start foaming at the mouth and shouting about ghosts at the drop of a hat. So I wanted to project an image of total sanity. I couldn't help taking one more look as I dried my hands, however. The girl's mouth was open and the humming was louder, a tune that tickled at the back of my mind like a far-off memory I couldn't reach. I ran back to my room and barricaded the door. Then I started doing some research, which is, after all, what I do best. So tomorrow, I'm going to try something. I'm going to talk to her. During the daytime, when, hopefully, I won't get as scared or jump to conclusions. I want to know if she's conscious. I'll report back then. Sunday. Okay, things are escalating fast. It took forever for Cassie to leave the apartment today, but I finally had the place to myself. After chickening out several times, I finally crept down to the bathroom and looked in the mirror, which was empty of anything but my face. I slumped down the wall, my head spinning, wondering if this was how insanity started. Pretty soon, I wouldn't be able to function because I'd be staring into the bathroom mirror all day, ranting and raving about humming ghosts speaking of humming i froze i could hear her again slowly i pushed myself up off the floor and looked in the mirror she was back i was flooded with equal parts relief i was right she was really there and terror there was a phantom in my mirror her mouth was open wider today and the humming was louder this was my chance to talk to her and since her vocal cords were apparently working, maybe she'd talk back. I cleared my throat ineffectively and choked out a single, <clears throat> hello? The humming stopped immediately. Her face grew larger, as though she was stepping closer to the other side of the mirror. Her mouth opened slowly, slowly, slowly. And finally, eyes drilling into mine, she spoke. Let me out, let me out, let me out. She repeated the phrase over and over as I stared open-mouthed. Her voice was plaintive, but also robotic, as though she had said this for years with no one listening. Finally, it occurred to me to keep talking and see if I could get her to say something else. Who are you? Her mouth closed with a sharp clack of teeth, and then opened again slowly to form the word... You." Fear coursed through my body like a series of electric shocks. She didn't repeat the word again, but stared harder at me. I couldn't look away. Are you… are you dead? I whimpered, all sense of bravado lost. She smirked at me. Are you dead? Great. Now I was talking to a mirror that mirrored my words. But then she continued. You will be soon. I opened my mouth and realized I couldn't speak. I would be dead soon? Oh my god, this was insane. This couldn't be happening. I refused to allow myself to be scared by a figment of my imagination, telling me that I would die soon. An angry reply bubbled up in my throat, but before I could spit it out, her face faded from the surface of the mirror, and all I could see was my face once more. I don't know what to do now. Sunday night. I can hear her from my room. She hums or repeats, Are you dead? Ad nauseum. Or she takes a relaxing break by hissing my name over and over. Liz. Liz. Elizabeth. I have never hated my name so much. I can't believe Cassie supposedly can't hear this. I'm going to bed. This is insane. I'll tell you if anything happens tomorrow. Monday night. It's almost midnight, and I got home two hours ago. I stayed late at the lab. I'd like to say it's because of my superior work ethic and drive to succeed. But honestly, I was just afraid to go home. But then I started freaking out whenever I saw mirrors in the bathrooms at work. I guess if I'm going to be terrified by mirrors, I'd rather be terrified in a place where I can run and hide beneath my covers in under 60 seconds if the need arises. For an hour, I sat in my room, listening to her hum my name over and over. I could feel her presence pulling me toward the bathroom, but I tried to resist. Finally, I couldn't help it. I scampered down the hall like a scared bunny and went to see her. I don't know what happened from then until about five minutes ago, and I'm terrified by that. I don't remember any time passing, but suddenly it was much later and I was sitting cross-legged on top of the sink, nose to nose with her face. It suddenly occurred to me that I couldn't see my own reflection in the mirror. Just hers. That shock was enough to propel me out of the room… for now. I've noticed that as soon as I leave the bathroom, I feel physical relief, like something heavy is pressing down on me the entire time I'm there and it lifts. But somehow, that magnetic pull keeps dragging me back. Tuesday. I couldn't go to work today. She wouldn't let me. I sat with her all day, and she hummed my name. Wednesday. She wants me to let her out. I don't know how. When I asked, all she said was, you will be soon. Thursday. I think I need help. Can anyone tell me how I could get her out? Should I break the mirror? Is there some kind of spell? Thursday, two hours later she keeps saying let me out are you dead and you will be soon over and over and it finally just hit me maybe maybe there always has to be someone in the mirror maybe i need to die to let her out i'm gonna go sit with her she's so lonely friday am i dead saturday Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh my god. This is unreal. This is Cassie. I saw this thread open on Liz's computer after... Well, she never shut it down, and I saw it, and... Oh my god. I don't know where to start. I don't know what's going on. I probably shouldn't even be posting here. The police will want her computer for evidence, but I'm so scared. Liz is dead. I came home Friday night thinking everything was normal, and walked into a nightmare. The bathroom mirror was shattered and Liz stood in front of it, her nose centimeters from the broken glass surface, holding a massive shard loosely in her fingers. My mind was completely empty, and I couldn't breathe. My ears rang, but underneath it all, I could hear her humming her own name, Liz, Liz. She raised the shard of glass to her throat, and before I could know what was going on or could come to my senses enough to stop her, she sliced. There's a lot of blood in the human body, incidentally. Obviously, I'm not at home right now. It's a crime scene. I'm staying at my boyfriend's house. I haven't used the bathroom in eight hours because I'm afraid to look in the mirror. But I don't know how much longer I can hold out. I don't know if anyone else is actually online right now, but if I don't reply for ten minutes... Never mind. You can't even do anything. Wish me luck. Sunday There are two girls in my mirror, and they sing my name through the walls. Cassie. Cassie. They ask me to let them out. I'm going to go sit with them. They must be so lonely. Am I dead yet?
2: I hope you enjoyed There's a Dead Girl in My Mirror, as written by Emily33 and performed by Justine Anastasia. Up next, we've got a third and final dose of darkness for you, written by Christopher Howard Wolfe, perhaps better known by his pen name, Slime Beast. And it's performed by yours truly, Jason Hill. In it... A gentleman challenges us to consider whether or not you'd be afraid of ghosts if they looked exactly like they do in children's cartoons, and would it change your mind if you knew for certain they were real? Without further ado, I present to you Sheet ghost Have you ever seen a sheet ghost? You know, the generic hovering spook dressed in a white sheet with eye holes. You've only seen them on television and in movies, right? Charlie Brown dressed as one. Mystery Inc. unmasked one on every episode of Scooby Doo. However, actual ghost stories rarely adopt this image. Real ghosts, if you believe in them, usually take the form of boring orbs of light or plain old humans people laugh at the idea of a cartoon ghost fluttering about, but at least it's a touch more creative than some random, semi-transparent person. So what would you say if I told you I've seen a sheet ghost? Maybe you chuckled a bit when I said that. Maybe you shook your head disapprovingly and you're about to stop listening. I'd advise against it. When I'm done, you might find yourself just a little more wary of sheet-clad specters than you were before. When I was 15, I fractured both of my forearms. Up until that point in my life, I displayed that sense of immortality older folks always accuse teens of having. I behaved like I was invincible, which led to a skateboard jump that probably looked amazing for about three seconds. Then I threw my arms out in front of me to stop the oncoming pavement. The gruesome twin pops told me everything I needed to know before the runaway train of agony traveled to my brain. And after my friends were through freaking out, a call to 911 had me in the back of an ambulance and on my way to Hokum County Hospital. You know how it went from there. I was partially scolded by EMS workers for not wearing elbow or knee pads. Nurses in the emergency room told me I was fortunate not to have broken anything else, and so on. I tuned them out at the time. Partially because I was an angsty teenager and partially because I was in the worst pain I had felt in my life. So far, at least. Luckily, only one wrist needed surgery. The other would heal itself over time. I found myself in double casts when I woke up after the procedure. I studied my arms and chuckled, declaring that I was the world's largest lobster. A concept likely brought about by the medication... The stickers and writing on my casts told me that some of my dumbass friends had come by while I was still knocked out, and had probably left out of boredom shortly thereafter. As my vision and my mind cleared, I read the scribblings out loud. Glad you didn't die. Get well, you smell, go to hell. Mm. I wasn't watching, do it again. Hmm, classic. The audible wheezing started while I was peeling off an arcade fire sticker. I didn't pay any attention to whoever was in the bed next to mine until that wheeze built into a rasping cough. After a few awkward moments of staring at the curtain dividing us, I couldn't take the guttural retching for any longer without speaking up angrily. "'Dude!' "Dude," I commented. Admittedly, I was only concerned with how much the patient was grossing me out, but, again, I was fifteen. "'Dude, are you, like, all right, or?' I asked." trailing off so the whooping chain-smoker could interrupt and tell me they were fine. Instead, there was no answer, just noise. I leaned dangerously far off the bed, especially in my woozy state. I threw the curtain aside with a rough sweep of a nearly numb arm. The bed was empty. There was no second patient. Worse yet, I could still hear the gradual tapering off of a pathetic, barely audible wheeze. The bed wasn't just empty, it was pristine, covered with a perfectly crisp white sheet and ready for the next person who needed a place to recover. I picked up the button to ring for a nurse as best I could and was about to mash it down with the other hand. All at once, feelings of embarrassment came over me as I realized my phantom roommate must have been another byproduct of the drugs. I put the button back down and laughed to myself as I studied the bare bed once again. Then the sheet began to rise, filling like an inflating lung drawing a slow, deep breath. I stared, confused at first, and then stupefied as it settled into the shape of a covered, motionless body. I fumbled for the call button again, jamming it rapidly. The draped figure sat up slowly from the bed, its rigid form staring forward and, thankfully, paying no attention to my presence. I stared in the stunned silence as the figure slid from the bed and stood, never dropping the sheet that draped back over its head. The body behind the sheet, as far as I could see, did not exist. I know what you're expecting at this point, and no, I didn't follow it. I sat there like a good boy and waited for the nurse to come in and tell me I was suffering from a pretty hardcore hallucination. I sat for minutes on end, watching as the cloaked figure stood facing the room's door, groaning loudly to itself. The sound was a droning, almost forlorn, oh, it repeated the ominous noise again. And again, until I was completely convinced I would lose my mind. If the stomach gnawing dread didn't do me in, the soul chilling din would. No one was coming. Somewhere deep inside, I knew that for a fact. I didn't understand what was happening, but I was slowly coming to the realization that, yes, it indeed was happening. The silver doorknob caught my attention. One groping turn, even with my useless arms, would allow the thing to pass through the doorway, relieving me of its horrifying presence. So, I did it. I stood up, approached cautiously, and let it out. A jolt of terror electrified my nervous system as the sheet-covered non-entity unexpectedly turned And with one sweeping motion, grabbed at my arm. Its face, that blank, expressionless face indented in fabric, hung motionless before me. Even though there was no readable emotion on it, I could feel that the thing was taking full notice of me for the first time since it appeared. I backed away quickly nearly stumbling over my own feet as an empty bedsheet moved through the doorway. Relief washed over me as I nearly crumpled to the floor. My head felt light and the beating of my racing heart rose up in my ears to replace the ghostly wail. The door creaked on its hinges, echoing in the silent hall beyond. There were no voices, no beeps and boops of medical equipment, nothing, but the groan gradually fading into the distance. I called out for help to anyone who could hear me. I was met with that same eerie silence. Cautiously poking my head out of the door, I could see the figure was a safe distance away, steadily shambling its way through a pair of push doors. I squinted at the signage near the end of the hall, and one word immediately stood out to me. Mortuary. Mortuary. The morgue. Yep, that was enough for me. I closed the door as quietly as possible, crept back to my bed, and tucked myself right in. I noped out of the situation in as calm and orderly fashion as humanly possible. I don't know if you've ever heard the term out of sight, out of mind, but I tried to live that phrase. Alone in the room once more, I decided that I had indeed been hallucinating, and that absolutely nothing was out of the ordinary repeated glances to the bed next to me now lying bare defied my attempts to regain some shred of comfort its covering was gone no matter how many times I looked away closed my eyes slowly counted to ten and looked back after a brief period of time that felt like an eternity I decided that it had always been that way I chuckled at the absurdity of me imagining a made bed I laid back, squeezed my eyes shut, and tried to force sleep. All that I could see, of course, was a certain white figure standing motionless in the pitch-black void behind my eyelids. I could try to fool myself, but the human mind doesn't let go of those images quite so easily. A realization dawned on me, causing my eyes to pop open again. The nurse still hadn't come I could deny everything else until fatigue eventually won out and I slipped into a dream but the fact that no one had answered the call button was an inarguable fact I pressed it again then a third time nothing for all I knew I was alone isolated in a strange second state of being with only the memories of a phantom to keep me company With the icy, bone-fingered grip of fright clasping my insides once more, I curled up in a fetal position and drew the blanket over my head. I had to shut the world out until it decided to behave properly and start making sense again. A new sound violated my ears. It was the most awful, maddening sound yet. An alarm rang out through the hospital bringing to mind every doomsday scenario I'd seen in a disaster movie. The repeated digital squeal was wrong. It slowed down and warped, dragging each death knell out into the most obnoxious, garbled screech. I had to leave. Not just the bed, not just the room, but the entire hospital. The almost pleasant post-surgery numbness was giving way to a dull ache that would only grow more insufferable over time. I didn't care, though. i choose the pain over staying in that madhouse any day. The roar of the alarm grew louder as I moved my head from the pillow and threw my blanket to the floor. Darkness. All that I could see of the room were faded swaths of reality bathed in the flickering red emergency lighting. I don't remember if I cried out, but I know I wouldn't have been able to hear myself over the din either way. I leaned against the wall and made my way back to the door, pushing the lever down again and swinging it open with my foot. The hallway was just as confusing, warning lights flickering in a weak attempt to lay out a path to safety. I kept to the wall as I moved through, pressing the casts against my ears to lessen the sensory overload. My brisk walk along the suggested route to the exit was halted when I realized where I was headed. The mortuary... The double doors were right in front of me and I hadn't noticed until I was face to face with them. It made no sense. I thought that I must have gotten turned around, that no actual route of escape would lead deeper into the building, but the conclusion was clear. Even with the distractions around me, I knew I was being guided in the wrong direction. The lit path, the pointing exit signs, and even the floor plan affixed to the wall were directly lying to me. So, naturally, the most sensible option was to turn around and do the exact opposite of what they said. I pivoted on my heels and sprinted in the other direction. I could feel my brow nodding up in confusion as I looked ahead. Through some deformity of time and space, I found myself once again headed toward the distant doors of the hospital morgue. Both ends of the hallway ended at the same location. No matter how rapidly I looked between them, both duplicates of the entrance remained firmly in place. I didn't need to get back to my room, I needed to get into any room. I had no idea what floor of the building I was on, but I knew I was going out of a window regardless. Flinging a random door open, I ducked through and into what should have been safety. Instead, I found that the door opened back into the same corridor with the same intimidating destination. The room number read 318, but the interior was a red-drenched hallway. Moving to the next door, I found 317 opened into the same exact space. So did 316, 315, and so on. I lost all hope in that moment. Either I was trapped in a nightmare I couldn't wake from, or I was going to die from the throbbing stress of sight and sound that threatened to burst my heart and mind. Neither option looked good. Boom. The double doors flew open, thrown wide as if they had been kicked out. In every direction all around me, an inexplicable house of mirrors displayed nearly identical images. It was a dark figure, black in silhouette, as if to contrast the walking sheet I'd just gotten rid of. I say the figures were only nearly identical because as my maddened owl's gaze was fixed in each direction... I noticed differences in speed and movement. The reflections at every end of every hallway within view were deviating from their clones as they approached me at the very center. The figure hovered above the stark white hospital floor, and as it levitated toward me, I could see what it truly was a body bag, shredded from the knees down, wisps of plastic hanging in tatters. Neon yellow warning tape wrapped the vertical bag as if it had pressed its way through a cautionary web and became ensnared in the process. My hands moved from my ears to my eyes, letting the full blast of the alarm pierce my skull again. Blotting out the scene in front of me seemed much more important. Suddenly, silence. I knew what that moment of quiet meant, and I feared it more than the noise. The thing... The body bag had reached its prey. It stood directly in front of me. It stood all around me. I felt as if I could have suffocated in the middle of their reeking, stifling bodies. I dropped my arms to my sides and let my head sink. There was nothing I could do. Nowhere I could run. Somewhere along the line I had passed from my own world into a parasitic twin dimension. Hell... I considered the idea that I might have suffered complications in surgery and that I was already dead. I opened my eyes, first staring balefully at the perfectly lit tiles under my feet, then raising my view to the thing in front of me. While I wasn't looking, the world had corrected itself, though the upright body bag still remained. What do you want from me, man? I whispered in a barely audible voice. There was only one now, one gleaming, dark form, its zippered face locked onto mine. Something spilled from beneath it, something wet, gelatinous, and smelling of death. A single interwoven rope of entrails, the braided innards spasmed and twirled around each other, pulling themselves upwards into the air like the searching tentacle of a sea monster. I gagged at the sight, my heaving stomach wanting nothing more than to uncontrollably spill its contents. The disgusting, spaghetti-like appendage wound itself around my arm. Despite my protests, I couldn't pull away. My screams fell on deaf ears. I could feel the decayed flesh of the thing working its way under the cast, Popping stitches, violating the fresh incision on my wrist. I don't know if there was some sort of shared thought as it tried to merge with my tissue, or if my thoughts had simply cleared in a moment of fight-or-flight panic. Either way, I now knew exactly what it wanted from me. The same thing it had tried to grab back in the hospital room. It needed my hand. It needed the fresh working part added to its conglomeration of meat, an appendage that wasn't locked in place by rigor mortis. It wanted to open doors. Doors to other patients. Doors to other buildings. I shrieked again, pulling my arm away as hard as humanely possible and falling to the floor in the process. The ripping of skin and tensing of sinew was unbearable. As I rolled on the floor in pain, a primal feeling took over. I couldn't die there. I couldn't die like that. I couldn't suffer whatever it wanted to do to me next. Wrapping the tentacle around my free arm, I brought it to my face and bit in. I ripped the fetid, slimy guts with my back teeth, gnawing them apart with the growl of a rabid dog. Spurts of blood and bile co-mingled in my face. When I had freed myself, I awkwardly crawled backward on my hands and heels. Another strand of innards emerged from beneath the attacker. Then another. It swept toward me, through the air, appearing as if it was walking on six squid legs then floating as a proper ghost should. I scrambled to my feet and ran as the sloppy, slick sound of organs on marble fell rapidly behind me. Dodging quickly into a room, I slammed the door shut behind me and once again collapsed onto my back. This time, it was from relief instead of terror. Just outside, I could see the black plastic head and glinting zipper through a frosted glass window in the floor. A moist, slurping sound accompanied frustrated, fumbling half-turns of the doorknob. I spat a mixture of puke and bodily fluids to the floor. Then, I lifted my shaking hand, the hand it had tried to take from me, and I raised my middle finger... This is all I'm giving you, bitch. I don't know exactly when or how I blacked out. There's a missing period of time between the enraged howl of a patchwork beast and the sound of nurses shouting at me. I awakened to a frenzied group of concerned faces as I was lifted from the place I had fallen and was placed back in my bed. I had spent the worst moments of my life with a ghost. A sheet ghost, no less. However... To the staff of the county hospital, nothing out of the ordinary happened. If you were to believe them, I rang for a nurse and she immediately came to my room, where I had lost consciousness after biting into my own wrist. Chalk it up to a bad reaction to the medication if you want, I guess. There's one problem with that story, though. When my loser friends came around to visit again, I told them all about the dream I had. They were equal parts grossed out and enthralled, especially Rat, the weird girl with a penchant for horror stories. It wasn't long after I told my tale that she chimed in with some unwelcome information. Apparently, there used to be a notable mortician on staff at that very hospital more than a decade ago, one who had a sick fascination with cutting out pieces of dead patients and doing God knows what with them. When he was caught lifting the liver of an organ donor, he was sentenced to a lengthy prison term. Newspapers labeled him the Morgue Man. Nearly a hundred bodies were exhumed in an attempt to find some scope of his crimes. After everything came to light, the only time he was out of state custody was spent on a hospital bed due to a prison stabbing. He died soon after. That was likely to be the very same bed I had shared my room with. So yeah, maybe you still aren't afraid of sheet ghosts. They're just low-effort Halloween costumes and lazy creature designs. Right? Me? I never want to see one again. I hope you never see one at all. I hope you enjoyed Cheek Ghost, as written by Christopher Howard Wolf and performed by yours truly, Jason Hill. If you enjoyed my performance, I'd like to invite you personally to check out more of my narrative nightmares on my program, Horror Hill. Available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever your favorite programs can be found with two thrilling seasons to sink your teeth into. And if you drop by and dig what I do, please take a moment to leave me a five-star review and a comment, and let me know you heard about me here on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. It would mean a lot to me. Thank you for listening and joining us tonight for this episode of Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. As a reminder, Take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave us a five-star review and a kind word, and to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. Segment, final sign-off. I'm your host, Jason Hill, and it has been a pleasure. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark.
1: Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, a production of Chilling Entertainment, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted by yours truly, Steve Taylor. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Logo by Craig Groshek. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? We take submissions.